Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and Caroline is not with us today, but we'll be back again in a week or two. Oh, this is a beautiful spring day. I'm in Texas today, where I spend part of my time, and often I'm in Iowa, about two-thirds of the time, but today I'm in Texas, and I am not sure where our guest is, but we'll find out shortly. We are talking today with Sayantani Dasgupta, who is the New York Times bestselling author, and I love saying that, of the critically acclaimed Bengali folktale and string theory-inspired Karanmala and the Kingdom Beyond books, the first of which, The Serpent's Secret, was a Bank Street Best Book of the Year, a bookless best middle grade novel of the 21st century, etc., She's also the author of She Persisted, Virginia Apgar, a part of Chelsea Clinton's She Persisted series, and Force of Fire, an anti-colonial and Bengali folktale-inspired fantasy set in the Kingdom Beyond multiverse. Her young adult debut is what we're talking about today, Debating Darcy, a multicultural speech and debate feminist reimagining of Pride and Prejudice. Now, Sayantani is a pediatrician by training and teaches at Columbia University. And when she's not writing or reading, she spends time watching cooking shows with her trilingual children and protecting her black lab from the many things that scare him. So welcome to Writer's Voices, Sayantani. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. And in answer to your question, I'm actually calling from... Uh, New York, which is also having a very, you know, New York's been a little reticent to jump into spring, but today it was actually a lovely day. Well, Iowa just can't make up its mind, that's for sure, whether it's spring or winter still. But uh, here in Texas, it's in the 80s today, so it's definitely at least spring, if not summer here. Oh, my goodness. I'm jealous. <laughs> I actually, I love coming down here because I can swim, you know, that's the one thing I miss in the wintertime up in Iowa is, is not being able, unless you go to an indoor pool, but with COVID and everything, you know, things yeah, got a little no, weird exactly. there. <laughs> so we've had a number of guests in the past who are physicians and fiction writers, and it almost seems like to, like, you wouldn't expect that, and yet it doesn't seem that uncommon. Why do you think you do both? Well, you know, I, you know, I don't seem to be able to make up my mind what I want to be when I grow up. Um, and so I actually have three different careers, and my middle career, I think, explains the the doctoring and the writing. So. Uh, I'm a pediatrician by training, as you mentioned, and of course, I write for young folks. You know, and we'll be talking about debating Darcy, I know, today. Um, but my middle career is that, uh, you know, the one that chronologically falls in between those two, is that I actually teach. Um, I'm a, you know, faculty member and I, uh, you know, in graduate program and undergraduate program. And I teach something called narrative medicine. And narrative medicine is the kind of clinical and scholarly endeavor to, um, theorize, but also kind of put into practical use a story in the clinical encounter. So it's this idea that, you know, we human beings, we understand ourselves through story. We always have. And that's never more true than in moments of change, trauma, illness, right? Um, And what narrative medicine does is it says, hey, if we can train physicians to become expert readers of x-rays. We, and if we can train English PhD students or, you know, English students to come off the street and become expert readers of text, we need to be able to do the same thing for, you know, medical students. We need to train future physicians and nurses and healthcare practitioners to not just read an x-ray, but to read the story of another human being's suffering. And so I think that, you know, story is so central, whether or not we understand it in those terms or not, to um, the practice of healthcare, that 
I think it actually makes a lot of sense that, you know, there are a lot of physicians who then turn to story writing, right? Who then turn to writing because essentially, again, whether or not they use the term narrative medicine or not, they deal with every day um, really powerful stories and they've become expert story listeners and story receivers, hopefully, um, if they're doing right their healing work well. And I think, I mean, I, I think you've really got something there because it seems like the issues that people have had with Western medicine is when that part of the physician's role got erased for a while. Mm. Most absolutely. Most absolutely. Like we have all these tools in our black bags, right? Uh, fancy all body scans and laboratory tests and what ha And those are all very, very important, but they can't crowd out that first kind of primal healing skill, which was just to show up and be present and witness, you know, another person's life and death and suffering and all the things that come in between. And also to true, to diagnose now, obviously some illnesses are very easy to diagnose and it's, and the treatment maybe is very clear and so forth. But a lot of times the diagnosis is not that straightforward, not that easy. And if you're not listening to the whole story, a physician may miss the, the clue that actually leads them to the correct diagnosis. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we often talk about um, narrative medicine training as actually being cost effective. Like people are, oh, how can we, we only have 15 minutes and this is, you know, impossible to do. To, well, first of all, we can change the fact that we only have 15 minutes. That's a policy. You know, maybe that's a problem. Right. Um, and beyond that, um, you know, maybe we can actually do our jobs better. Like this isn't just fancy bows and whistles kind of a thing. This is actually being trained systematically to attend to, you know, interpret and act upon another human being's story actually will probably get you, you know, to a diagnosis, a treatment plan, and a better relationship with that person um, in a much more efficient way than rushing through and kind of blustering about 15 minutes and then relying on other things. Um, you know, labs and CAT scans are very important, but again, let's not rely on them to the exclusion of story. So how did you come to teach narrative medicine? Um, I, <laughs> I had heard of the term. I'm laughing because it was, it, it, it's like such a ramshackle story. Um, I had heard of the term. I knew from when I was young that medicine and storytelling were two things I wanted to do, but I thought that they were disconnected. I thought they were two, you know, I would have to do one is my profession, one is a hobby. And that was that never the twain shall meet kind of a thing. Um, and I had heard this term and I had absolutely no idea what it meant. Um, but I showed up at the doorway of Rita Sharon, who is my colleague now, but back then she had uh, an NEH grant and she was just starting to kind of develop uh, her theories of narrative medicine, just starting to think about, you know, um, making a division, you know, at Columbia kind of at the very beginning stages. And I kind of showed up and I said, hey, would you, do you need another pair of helping hands? Like, can I be involved in this? Um, and at that point, I was about to take a, a chief residency up at a different hospital. And I said, you know, if that's possible, I'll come down here and I'll do a fellowship down here and I'll, I'll you know, continue my pediatrics training down here if I can simply work in this field with you. And it worked out. Luckily, she, she said yes. I was among kind of an early cohort of um, interdisciplinary professionals who came together and um, started the narrative medicine program at Columbia, and later we started the graduate program uh, altogether. So, it, but it was definitely um, a case of not exactly knowing what I was getting into, but having an instinct. Well, wait a minute, this sounds exactly up my alley, and uh, you know, kind of going for it. Now, was Columbia at the forefront of this movement? You know, there is 
so much interesting work going on at all sorts of institutions around this country, around the world. It's not always called narrative medicine. Sometimes people call it literature and medicine or medical humanities, health humanities. There are kinds of different terms and different rationales for those terms. Um, so I don't want to say that Columbia is somehow unique in the work, but certainly it's at the forefront of this thing that we call narrative medicine, you know, in its specificities. Um, but the exciting thing is, again, there is kind of interrelated um, work going on all across the U.S. and all around the world. Um, maybe not always called narrative medicine, but, um, you know, everyone is doing very exciting stuff. I'm sure that I've, that one of my previous guests had a very similar story to use, and I wish I could remember her name, um, who was a physician and a writer and was interested in this, in this field as well. But uh, it'll, if it ever comes to me, I'll let you know who it was. <laughs> because, oh, do, oh, do, because yes. I have so many lovely colleagues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who also write and, uh, and, you know, do health humanities or narrative medicine work. Wow. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Sayantani Dasgupta, author of Debating Darcy. So, Debating Darcy is a updated version of Pride and Prejudice. Of course, that has been done in many different variations and forms over the years, movies, books, etc. What what drew you to this? Why did you want to put your mark on this story? Well, I am a huge Austin head, a huge <laughs> Austin fanatic. Um, I have seen all the movies and television programs of all the, you know, all of her stories. And, uh, you know, I go to the, any off-Broadway or live theater production of her work. Um, I've, of course, read all the novels multiple times, and Pride and Prejudice has always been my favorite. It was also the first one I read, um, and I read it maybe when I was 12 or 13. My mother handed me an old kind of battered copy that I still have, um, and I was a little reluctant at first, and then I didn't want to admit to her how much I loved it. <laughs> I was like, oh, my goodness. You know, I thought it was going to be like this book is good for you kind of a book, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, of course, when you're, that is never the right answer for a 12 or 13 year old. <laughs> um, but a book about sisters and balls and falling in love and humor. I mean, it, it, it was irresistible to me. Um, and yet, as with most other stories that I read as a young person, you know, I'm an immigrant daughter. My parents are immigrants from India. I grew up in this country. Um, and I grew up in this country at a time when, really, there was very, very little representation of anyone who looked even vaguely like me in movies, in stories, in, you know, television programs, anything. And, you know, that lack of representation, it made its mark on me, unfortunately. It gave me the message, um, the very false message that I don't want any other young people to kind of take on, but he gave me the message, hey, there are no heroes who look like you, uh, so maybe somebody like you doesn't deserve to be a hero, right? Maybe some, somebody like you doesn't deserve to be centered or be the love interest uh, or the protagonist or what have you. And it wasn't until my own children, you know, I had these other careers, my own children were becoming big readers, and 30 years down the line, they were having the same experience hey, mom, we love XYZ books, but where are the ones about kids who look like us? Where are the ones about brown kids also? Um, that I started writing for children um, because I was so frustrated at the fact that I had had this experience and it had been extremely detrimental to me. It took me years to kind of unpack the fact that this wasn't a problem with me, but with, you know, kind of the structures outside of myself. And then to think that my own children were having this experience was just too painful. So I did start the Kieran Mall and the Kingdom Beyond series at the bedside for my own children. Um, and debating Darcy, I decided to reimagine my beloved Pride and Prejudice <laughs> with kind of multicultural faces with brown and black and um, you know, all sorts of different ethnic backgrounds in sexual orientations and what have you uh, within it for the same reason. 
But this time it wasn't, it was for my children who were by this time teenagers, but it was really for me. It was for that 12 year old girl who's, you know, that 12 year old reader who still lives inside of me somewhere who never got to see herself, even in her beloved, beloved tales. And um, so you know, I both decided to do this to celebrate, to kind of include, um, you know, all sorts of different faces within uh, Austin's beloved tale um, to kind of reclaim it, to kind of say, hey, Jane Austen belongs to all of us. Uh, and at the same time, I tried to trouble the idea. So I actually have my two protagonists, Feroz and Leela, actually have an argument about rewriting you know, kind of canonical or, you know, traditional stories uh, with new faces in them. And Leela says, hey, why not? Look, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda does it in Hamilton. I love Hamilton. You know, it's reclaiming American history. It's saying it belongs to all of us. And Feroz, the boy in the story, says, well, isn't that just letting those old stories off the hook? Isn't it, you know, forgetting then to critique them for their racism or their colonialism or what have you, um, you know, kind of the idea, oh, you know, Jefferson couldn't have been an enslaver. He couldn't have been so bad. Look, he can rap really well. And the actor who plays him is really handsome, you know, kind of a thing. Um, and it was a fun moment for me to have these two characters who I did insert into an Austin story arguing about whether or not, you know, we should be inserting people of color into stories in which they traditionally don't appear. Um, so it was a kind of fun meta moment. What do you think of Bridgerton? Well, I'll tell you the truth. I mean, I really enjoy I mean, I have, you know, a teenage daughter who I watch it with. It is incredibly gratifying, especially this season, to see dark-skinned Indian women being centered, uh, being beloved, being considered beautiful. It was not something I ever thought that I would see <laughs> on American television in my lifetime. It's kind of um, amazing, you know, isn't it? <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, look, I have I, I have critiques of, you know, they mishmash several Indian languages together. You know, there, <laughs> I have several critiques, but, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, you can't, there's something extraordinarily powerful about representation. And I think the more representation we all get, the more all of us benefit. Not just those of us who see ourselves on screen finally um, and feel that mirror confirmation, right? But all of us, I think everyone benefits when we have a kind of myriad kind of, you know, rainbow, like, a, you know, a, a myriad group of faces, um, a myriad group of heroes available to us and heroines available to us. Um, and I think that that's beneficial to absolutely everyone. The thing I find so fascinating about Bridgerton is that the characters are of various skin tones, racial backgrounds, and that is not part of the story. It's well, like, I think in season one, they tried to make it a part of the story. They tried to explain like, oh, Queen Charlotte had been married to the king and because of this, different communities had access, but then they kind of dropped it. That's true. I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just like, everyone just accepts that you can be a black Duke in, at, you know, in, uh, in, Regency, England. in Regency, England. And, uh, and you can be a um, Indian woman as the, crown of the seas of the debutante season right the the bell of the ball right. <laughs> and, I and just, it's kind of delightful because it look, is it's, it's fantasy it's you know it's frothy it's over the top i mean look at the colors look at the way the sets are designed i don't think it's pretending to be something it's not right it's not no. saying hey we're going to go in really in depth and look at the British colonization of South Asia, which was terrible and, you know, which killed many, many people. You know, those are all real. I think we can hold both of those ideas in our head at the same time. I think you can say, hey, there's a lot, you know, that we're not talking about when we cast this way. Um, but simultaneously, and, and, you know, and there can be think pieces on that. We can have discussions about that. We can say, 
you know, let's also watch a different series that's more critical of that. But, you know, you can also, at least from my perspective, you can also really like enjoy and be filled up by the, you know, incredible joy of seeing somebody like you who's centered in that way and considered beloved in that way. And that's really what I wanted to do with Pride and Prejudice. I wanted to say, hey, Elizabeth Bennett, we love her. She's beautiful and witty and sharp and an unforgettable heroine. And hey, we can also have a brown-skinned woman, Leela Bose, occupy that role. Um, and in fact, I want to read you the dedication to debating Darcy because I think it speaks a little bit to this issue um, because the dedication is for all the brown girls who dreamt of gossamer gowns only to realize we were already wearing crowns. And I think this idea is, you know, I was a brown girl who dreamt of gossamer gowns only to realize, hey, I wouldn't be necessarily, if we're being historically accurate, not like Bridgerton, <laughs> I wouldn't be included in those scenes, right? I wouldn't, I would be, you know, scrubbing the floors or the colonized, you know, person overseas. I wouldn't be in the gossamer gown. Mm. But I think in that dreaming, maybe we can realize that we're already queens, right? We already have the beauty and royalty and imagination that we need within us. Um, and then, of course, the P.S. dedication is a little bit more tongue-in-cheek. Um, so it's for all the gr brown girls who dreamt of gossamer gowns, only to realize we were already wearing crowns, and for Colin first, for reasons <laughs> that I hope were obvious. <laughs> you gotta have, you know. Yes. Fun yes. and serious, simultaneously. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that makes it work in Bridgerton is the music. Because mm. you've got this modern music being played in these very, in a, you know, Regency style. And that's obviously not historically accurate either. But it, it's sort of just something that makes it all work to me. Oh, absolutely. I, mean, I think that they're saying, it's kind of like when you're watching science fiction or speculative fiction. This is an imagined world, right? It has elements of Regency England, and it has elements of 2022, um, you know, America and Europe, um, but it's also an imagined space, and we're imagining the world we want to see. We're imagining a world where everybody gets to wear the gossamer gown, and everybody gets to wear the crown, <laughs> and, right, right, and, right. Um, everyone gets to be beautiful, and I think that, that there's something incredibly powerful about that. Now, your former work books were fantasy, correct? Yes, they were. And Debating Darcy is not. So how no, is I mean, that different for, for you? Of, of, <laughs> of, you know, brown kids and pride and prejudice. <laughs> yeah, although you're setting it in a, in a modern time and, and there's nothing that your heroine is doing that seems at all fantastical. No, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's a yeah. it's a contemporary rom com set in a high school. Right. Absolutely. Right. So how is it different writing that a contemporary novel essentially as opposed to creating a, a fantasy world? And will you continue to write in this style or or will you go back to fantasy? Well, you know, I'm I'm still continuing both kind of simultaneously. So there is a, so the Kieran Mall and the Kingdom Beyond books are a trilogy based on my grandmother's folktales. So here, there, I'm still kind of reinterpreting, although a bit more fast and loose, um, some old stories, some stories that I loved, some stories that really were with me as I grew up and are kind of a part of my psyche and personality. Um, and then I use those stories and I combine them with string theory because why not? Um, which is idea, <laughs> okay. You right? actually, you need to go into a little more detail. How <laughs> does string theory work in this? I don't even know what string theory is. You know, well, so. At, so apologies to any physicists or <laughs> astrophysicists or what have you who are listening um, for my bungled explanation. But as I understand it, um, string theory is this idea, this, you know, it's the idea of the multiverse, this idea that there are 
parallel universes lined up like strings on a guitar. And somebody on one string may be right next to somebody on another, but they're just not aware of them. And I loved this metaphor for the immigrant experience because I thought, wait a minute, immigrants and immigrant families, we're space travelers. We're intergalactic kind of, you know, uh, astronauts. We can hop from one string to the other with ease. And yet the people in one world still don't know about the people in another world. And that's what gave me the idea, that metaphor of, you know, the immigrant experience really is a little bit like going through a portal and going into an entirely different world, particularly when my parents integrated, you know, before the internet, before easy, you know, cell phones and that kind of thing. Um, it really was like going into an entirely new galaxy. Um, and we knew what, you know, what existed on multiple strings, but the people on those strings didn't know. The people who permanently lived on those strings didn't know as much. Um, and so I used kind of my grandmother's folktales and this idea of string theory in that Kieran Mala series um, to come up with kind of this fantastical world where a, an immigrant daughter from New Jersey has to go on all of these intergalactic adventures because she realizes that, you know, all the seemingly ridiculous stories her parents told her when she was growing up, that she was actually kind of an interdimensional princess, um, were real. And she has to essentially follow her parents' stories like a roadmap and save her parents, save the universe, maybe even save New Jersey um, in the process. <laughs> um, and so there's a trilogy. There's also um, a kind of prequel duology uh, called the Fire Queen series. Force of Fire is a part of that. And I have Crown of Flames, which is a follow-up to Force of Fire coming out in the fall. So on the one hand, I'm writing kind of middle-grade fantasy um, based on my grandmother's folktales. And on the other hand, I am writing um, YA contemporary. The similarity with both is that both are a little bit based on stories that I love. So writing based on my grandmother's folktales and writing based on Austin to me is a fairly similar gesture because I've loved these stories for so long. They kind of make up the heart of me. And so I do have another Austin inspired book coming out next year. Um, that is called Rosewood, a midsummer meat cute. And it is, uh, <laughs> if you'll, if you'll hang in there with me, it's sense and sensibility meets Shakespeare meets Austin land meets high school musical. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a bit looser in interpretation of sense and sensibility. Debating Darcy sticks pretty closely with the pride and prejudice plot, whereby all the dances and balls that the characters go to end up morphing into speech and debate competitions throughout Debating Darcy. Um, and up till almost the very end, the kind of last third of the book, I do stick fairly closely to the Pride and Prejudice plot. Um, but this next book coming out next year, it's a bit, it's about two sisters, um, but it's a bit more loosely based on sense and sensibility. There's a, there's a lot of Shakespeare in there as well, and um, because I grew up on Shakespeare also, and, and I'm a big Shakespeare nerd <laughs> as well as an Austin nerd. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Sayantani Dasgupta, author of Debating Darcy. So debate and forensics, which in where when I was growing up in Iowa, we did not have debate; we only had speech. But we had all the different, like, humorous interpretation and um, various uh, original oratory, all of the different categories that you talk about that um, we have in here. But we did not have debate. So tell me about your experience in, in debate and forensics. Oh, I love that you are familiar with it. Yes, I did humorous interpretation. Um, <laughs> I loved speech and debate. Um, I competed in speech competitions like Leela, both my character does in the beginning of the novel. Um, and I never debated, but I had friends who debated. So we had both, but I just happened not to do debate. Um, but I was always fascinated with it. Um, first, because my friends who did debate could always twirl their pens very quickly and I could never get the hang of like how they twirled their pens. It was, it was a thing. I'm not sure what it was about, but it was a thing. Um, 
and I really tried hard to twirl my pen like them, and it didn't work. Um, so there was the pen twirling, and then they just seemed so you know, easily able to kind of distill arguments down. Um, they could speak very quickly about, you know, important topics. And I was intrigued. I never ended up doing it. But when I decided to have um, Feroz be a debater, and he's so arrogant and so frustrating to Leela the first time she meets him, that she eventually decides, hey, I'm going to switch categories, become a debater, and beat this, you know, arrogant guy at his own game, like humiliate him. Um, and of course, in the process of debating, they, you know, kind of discover their feelings for one another. Um, but I had to go back and do some do some research, make sure I was getting it right, because I was never a debater. So I mm. went back to folks from my time, old friends, and then I tried to touch base with some younger folks debating now or recently um, to make sure that, you know, things hadn't changed that much uh, over time. But no, I, I love debate as a metaphor for pride and prejudice because Lizzie and Darcy, I mean, it's it, the classic enemies to lovers couple. They are witty. They banter and they, you know, they use sentences like swords, right? They, debate their way into falling in love. So it made perfect sense to me, right, to set it in the world of high school speech and debate. Definitely. Now, the issues that the characters ran into with misogyny in the debate culture is, did you have, were there, was there some like real reality to that? Is that something that you've heard about or been talked to female debaters about? Yeah, so unfortunately, you know, I do bring up, you know, issues of misogyny in kind of the debate circuit. Um, I brought it up initially because I wanted Mr. Wickham, right, the nasty cad of a fellow from Pride and Prejudice, who, you know, is a 20, 30-year-old something, you know, adult man who systematically hits on 15, 16-year-olds constantly. I wanted him to get his just desserts. I wanted him to get, you know, what was coming to him. But unfortunately, um, I didn't have to imagine that, you know, kind of sexism and that, you know, kind of misogynistic reality. I didn't have to imagine it because um, there are many brave young people um, talking online, usually anonymously, but in spaces on kind of Instagram and in other social media spaces, you know, young people talking about this kind of thing, misogyny, kind of sexually inappropriate behavior um, and whatnot that happens in the debate circuit. And they're kind of telling their stories very bravely in social media spaces. And I tried not to stick too closely, you know, to anybody's particular story that I saw online, but certainly I was, you know, deeply moved, saddened, but also inspired by the bravery of these you know, young people kind of speaking out against what was going on in debate culture in high school. It really got to me how the judges were, who are supposed to be adults who know better, were, you know, judging the female competitors on a completely different scale than the males, focusing on their appearance, on their, you know, accusing them of being shrill or not smiling enough just oh that just really gets to me yeah and unfortunately you know that's something I think that you know again I drew from these young women talking about their speech and debate experiences online but you know as I read those accounts I realized well that's something that's happened to me plenty of times in my life right I've in school, you know, there's rules about spaghetti straps or how short skirts can be. And those rules were there in my time. They're still here in my daughter's time, unfortunately. Um, you know, hey, smile. Why don't you smile more? You know, um, those kinds of things, unfortunately, pervade our culture. And in, in some ways, they're so pervasive that we don't even see them anymore sometimes, right? Until... Um, right until somebody speaks out about them. And I, I really wanted to 
create a space in debating Darcy to honor kind of the scariness, but also the importance and bravery of being able to use your voice. And speech and debate is about using your voice. And speaking out against injustice is about using your voice. So that's kind of where that was coming from, that I included it um, at the heart of Debating Darcy. Now, it's been a long, long time since I've read Pride and Prejudice, probably probably 40 years, but um, or close to. So I don't remember the characters. Is there a character that the, um, the older actress... Was she based on a character out of Pride and Prejudice? Because she was oh so goodness. not nice. <laughs> so, yes, she's based on Lady Catherine de Berg. Um, so, there, I think I call her Professor Catherine de Berg. Professor in, Catherine. Um, okay, okay. Yes. yes. Um, but, yes, yeah, so Lady Catherine de Berg is this formidable lady in Pride and Prejudice who is very wealthy and is, you know, Darcy, the hero's aunt, and becomes very, you know, incensed at the idea that somebody like Lizzie Bennet could dare, you know, presume to be engaged to her nephew. And she creates a great fuss in the original Pride and Prejudice. And so I wanted to recreate a woman just as formidable but also just as ridiculous in some senses. And so she's like an acting teacher and she's over the top and she wears bangles and scarves and, you know, speaks in an over the top way. Uh, she was such a delight, that character. <laughs> I was kind of disappointed that she turned out to be so nasty, though. I didn't want her to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, she's pretty nasty in the original. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although there are a few characters who I... Uh, who I, you know, I gave them a break. Mr. Collins in the original book is, you know, he's just kind of unstandable throughout. And Colin Kang, who's the character in Debating Darcy, he's actually, I have kind of a soft spot for him. Yeah. Um, like he's, he's awkward. <laughs> he's a little clueless. But he's essentially just a good human being, like a good guy um, who's trying to do the right thing by everyone. So I gave a, I gave a few characters from Jane Austen's original a bit of a break. <laughs> I like the I like that he, you know, he wasn't a bad guy. So no, I, I like no, that. A, I like yeah. that. Yeah, he's awkward. <laughs> yes, he's, everyone's awkward. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Cyan Tani, why don't you read a little bit from Debating Darcy for us? I'd love to. So I think what I'll do is read from the beginning. I think that's the easiest way. To do okay. It. Sounds um, good. So here we go. Chapter one. And um, so remember the first title of Pride and Prejudice was First Impressions. So Pride and Prejudice really is all about people making snap judgments the first time they meet another person. So this is the first time that my character Leela meets her eventual love interest for Rose. So here we go. Chapter one. The first time I saw Rose Darcy, I was standing on the top of a cafeteria table in a high school I didn't even go to. A borrowed tie around my head like a bandana. Belting out show tunes into a wedge platform heel I was using as a microphone. In other words, I was not at my dignified best. I was on the aforementioned cafeteria table in the middle of performing my favorite song from Hamilton with my friends, Tommy and Jay, when I saw him. A boy I'd never seen before. He was suited and booted, as my cousins in India would say. He was tall, dark, and handsome, like the cliche hero from an 18th century British novel. Also, I realized with a weird skip of my heartbeat, he was Daisy like me. And man, could the guy wear a suit. Of course, pretty much every other teenager in the Hartford High School cafeteria on that September afternoon was wearing a suit, because that was the generally accepted uniform at speech and debate competitions. But while most of us looked like 
awkward adolescence wearing cheap off-the-rack imitations of adulthood. This guy looked like someone had cut and molded his dark blue blazer to his not inconsiderable shoulders. What I mean to say is this. He was, at least by appearance, just what a young man ought to be. <laughs> so, logically, I entirely blame him for what I did next, which was to look straight down into the boy's dark eyes from my perch on the wobbly cafeteria table, crook my non-manicured finger at him, and start singing at him like he was a beautiful woman and I, the future, the future murderous vice president of the United States. Excuse me, miss, I know it's not funny, but your perfume smells like your daddy's got money. <laughs> the entire cafeteria already hopped up on nervous competition energy and vending machine snacks exploded in laughter. The boy made an incoherent noise, half clearing his throat and half protesting. I'm sorry, he managed to say, blinking at me. His voice was deep and chocolate molten cake yummy. His delightful voice, combined with the uptightness of his expression, somehow egged me on. I winked, hamming it up. So she goes on. She sings some more lyrics, including the part from Hamilton about, I'm a trust fund baby. You can trust me. Everyone in the cafeteria went bonkers at that, howling and pointing. When the boy realized the entire cafeteria was staring at him, his body grew tense, his expression changing rapidly from surprise to shock to glowering. She's got you there, man, said a blonde dude I hadn't noticed before next to the Daisy boy. You do have a fat trust fund, don't you, Darcy? Blonde boy was smiling and nodding at us, or rather, should I say, smiling and nodding at Jay, a flirtatious smile playing at his lips. But as much as he seemed to be enjoying our performance, his friend clearly wasn't. I hope you're happy, Bingley. The Daisy boy named Darcy knocked his friend's arm off his shoulder. This kind of immature behavior is exactly why I didn't want Netherfield Academy joining the public school forensics league in the first place. Everyone in earshot, who as it happened, almost all attended public schools, shouted in outrage. Someone threw a wadded up page of homework in his direction. Giving the crowd an imperious look, Darcy turned on his heel and stalked away. What in the actual Marie Antoinette? Jay asked, and the team at the next table cheered. Even Tommy, who normally did not stoop to insults, snapped her finger in the air like she was one of the Schuyler sisters. Seriously, off with his head. This kind of immature behavior, I mocked in a voice loud enough to carry. What an elitist jerk. Then, a beat or two too late, I added, I, I mean, let them eat cake. The moments passed, Sophia Coppola. Jay patted my arm in mock sympathy as he jumped off the table. I'm still working on my timing vis-a-vis -vis spontaneous quippery, I admitted. That Marie Antoinette comment was so good, though, said Tommy. I know, right? Jay said, in such a self-satisfied way that I laughed. Our Longbourn High teammates, along with the next over Meriton team, clapped. And Jay took a wavy-handed, Shakespearean-style bow. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I can read from later in that chapter, but I think that that gives you a sense of uh, Leela and Feroz's first meeting. It definitely does. And, and of Leela's character, too. We don't learn too much about Feroz here. Yes, yes. There's late, but, you know, a bit later in the chapter we yes, do, or yes. you know, and later as we come up we do. But you know, this um, Pride and Prejudice is, you know, based on a slightly chaotic family, um, and in debating Darcy, it's not her biological family, but I think we all have that experience of our teammates or our, you know, sports team or our club mates kind of becoming like a chosen family. Mm -hmm. So that's the situation that Leela is in. She has this slightly chaotic, slightly over the top, <laughs> but very loving um, set of teammates. 
And, um, you know, they're constantly trying to out flamboyant each other, singing on tables, you know, joking, trying to be one more witty than the next. Uh, but that was the way that I was trying to kind of be true um, to the incredible wit and humor of the original Austen novel. Oh, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about your path to publication. So when sure. you started writing, you're writing for middle, middle grade readers, correct? Right. So eight, eight to 12 year olds. Okay. Yep. okay. And how did you find your publisher? Um, it took a while, mostly because I didn't know what I was doing. To be <laughs> um, I wrote The Serpent Secret, which is the first of the Kieran Mala books for my children, right? Um, so I kind of would write at the bedside and, you know, ask them what they thought. Um, and I took seven years to write that book, mostly because, again, I was just kind of writing for fun. And it wasn't until a few years in that I thought, hey, maybe I could get this published. Um, and so I did what every perpetual student does, which is I started attending workshops and conferences and trying to learn as much as I could about the craft of writing for children, um, which is very different than the kind of academic grown-up writing that I was used to doing. Um, and it took a while. Um, it was a couple of agents in, um, definitely a number of you know, hundreds of submissions probably in to both agents and then eventually to editors before I found my wonderful team. So Brent Taylor is my agent. Uh, Abby McAdden is my um, wonderful kind of brilliant editor at Scholastic who has edited all of these books except for the Virginia um, Apgar book. Um, it definitely took a long while um, and it was frustrating. And there were multiple times that I thought, gee, is this going to ever happen? <laughs> um, but I, I don't know. I just, I kept going mostly because I couldn't not, mm. you know, I mean, I think become a writer if you can't stop yourself, like you can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> you just love it too much. Um, now, it what might kind be a hard of, road, but keep going. What kind of feedback did you get on the folk tales, like people who were familiar with these folk tales that you base these stories on? Were there, you know, like, why'd you change this? Or this isn't the way I heard it growing up. Or was it all just very enthused that you were actually telling these tales at all? Well, you know, these, so Bengali folk tales, they're non-religious stories, right? They're kind of like our version of Goldilocks or the Three Bears, that sort of a thing. And the reason I felt comfortable, I was, you know, scared to use or, you know, play too fast and loose with stories that people loved. But what gave me courage was I remembered that even my grandma, when she would retell these folk tales, um, she would change things and she would change things in a really obvious way. Like if one cousin had been fighting with his brother and had been naughty that day or lied, you know, the lesson of the folktale suddenly became don't fight with your brother or don't lie or whatever. <laughs> um, and it was very obvious. She was changing them in the moment. And I realized, you know what, that's what oral stories are. Mm -hmm. They are, um, they change, they're dynamic, they shift reader to reader, and that's the joy of them. And so I tried to keep that in mind as I kind of played with these stories. And mostly, um, or I would say entirely, at least to my ears, the feedback I've gotten from, you know, the Bengali people either in Bangladesh, in India, or through the diaspora who are familiar with these stories has been incredibly positive. They're like, oh, you know, our Takumar and Chuli stories, nobody knows about them. Now here they are kind of on the world stage or, or nobody beyond, you know, beyond the very extensive Bengali world um, knows about them, but here they are on the world stage or here they are for different, in a different language, for a different audience. So that has been incredibly um, heartwarming. And I'm really, really just, I'm delighted also to be, representing multiple faith communities because again these aren't religious stories they're like the three bears kind of you know they're that kind of a level of story um these are stories that are loved by bengali hindus muslims christians you know buddhists 
atheist, what have you. <laughs> um, and particularly, you know, in South Asia, which is so fraught right now along religious lines, I'm really just delighted to be able to celebrate stories that people from so many different faith backgrounds share and come together on. And maybe story is a way to reunite some of these divisions. Well, absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, story can be manipulated the other way too, right? We can Uh, tell terrible stories about our neighbors. We can say, oh, they don't belong or, or they're an infestation or whatever. And and I think, you know, Chimamanda Adichie is a novelist. She in that beautiful um, TED talk that she gives, The Danger of the Singular Story. She says, you know, stories can be used to dispossess and to malign, but stories can be used to humanize. And I think that that's the key that we that we can really use stories in positive ways as much as we can use them in negative ways. And I, I, I think that circles back to the kind of the, the connections between healthcare and storytelling that we we began this hour with. Exactly, exactly. Um, I saw now one of the kind of themes in debating Darcy. Leela is very much a feminist, and there's something that happens. We talked about the misogyny in the in the debate world, and you know, there's an event I don't want to give away, but um, where she needs to draw on her feminism to um, try and combat it. And so I was very, found it very interesting uh, on your website to see that you and your mother appeared on the cover of Ms. Magazine in 1992. Can you tell me about that? That's right. So I was so intrigued by the fact that you are usually on this podcast with your daughter. Is that correct? My mother. I'm usually on with my mother. Oh, oh your mother. With because my mother. Yeah. I'm sure which yeah. And she, she's 86. And so she's slowing down a little bit and, and doesn't feel like she can keep up with reading a book every week. So, so mm-hmm. she's only on about every other time with me now. But for we've been doing this since 2006 and she used to be on every single week. So. <laughs> oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. Yeah. So my, uh, I grew up, you know, with an activist immigrant parent, uh, you know, parents. Um, my mom was the founder of, uh, one of the founders of the first kind of anti-domestic violence organization in this country, specifically for South Asians, um, called Manavi. And I grew up kind of in that context. Uh, stuffing envelopes, you know, for fundraisers and that kind of thing as I grew up. Um, and so I have, you know, enormous respect for um, both that mother-daughter bond, you know, so we did appear, you know, on the cover of Ms. in 1992, which was a hoot. Um, and it was like, hottest new teams, feminist mothers and daughters. And of course, at the time, I had just barely graduated college, so I'm not sure what I was doing that was that impressive, <laughs> but um, certainly she was very impressive. Um, and uh, no, I mean, we've been lifelong collaborators. Um, we've written together. Um, and now, you know, I have a son and a daughter. So to me, kind of that intergenerational work is just so exciting and important. So I love the fact that you're doing Oh, I know it is. It is wonderful. I I enjoy it very much. I wouldn't be doing it without her. Um, We started at on a local radio station, a community radio station. The when they were starting it up, um, the manager came to me. He was a friend. He said, "Yeah, I really want you to do a show on here. You should do do a show. You can do anything you want." And I thought about it, and my mother at the time, my stepfather's health wasn't that good, and she lived and still does live about a half hour away from where I live and where this radio station was. And I thought, you know, I should do it with her because she had a career in radio earlier back in the seventies. She had been, and in the eighties and in almost up till the point where we started this, she was uh, doing, she was, uh, had a weekly show on a, on a Christian radio station near where she lived. And before that she'd had a daily talk show in our local station, in a different local commercial station, and so I thought, oh, I should do a radio st- show with her because that will give us a way to connect every week, 
you know, and, and oh, keep I love us connected. That. So that's how it all started. And, um, and here we are, that radio station closed down, but we're now on two others and, um, in Iowa. And then of course the, you know, with the growth of the internet, you can, don't even have to be on live radio, although I love, I still love live radio, but, or, you know, real broadcast radio. So, but, oh, I love that. but before we, we're almost out of time, but I also want to ask about your, you and your mother and grandmother were featured in a book, The Family of Women. Well, you were, my goodness, you've done your digging. <laughs> um, <laughs> absolutely. My grandmother's, uh, you know, no longer with us, but um, she was amazing and was a botanist. <laughs> and, um, and she's the one who told me all those folk tales that my Karen Mala stories are based on. She's the one who would alter, shamelessly alter the stories to give my cousins like a scolding, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like around, in a roundabout way, right, um, through the stories. Um, so I, you know, I just hope that I'm doing her and my other grandmother and my grandfather justice, um, both in writing kind of my folktale-based fantasy series, but even my Austin series. So the first time I read, I told you that my mom gave me that old battered copy of Pride and Prejudice to read when I was 12 or 13, but she gave it to me in India and we were on vacation. It was a long summer vacation and my grandfather had bookshelves and bookshelves and bookshelves, um, but of books for adults, you know, it wasn't really books for 12 year olds necessarily. Um, and I was, you know, my cousins were at school because their school year is different and I was bored and I didn't really want to read Dostoevsky as a 12 year old. <laughs> So my mother fished out this copy of Pride and Precious from his bookshelf. So I, I don't know. I, I really hope and I feel that as much as I'm writing these stories for my children and all of our children to see themselves represented and see themselves celebrated, I also hope that I'm carrying forth the tradition of kind of my foremothers and forefathers, um, you know, and all my elders who've taught me so much. Um, like, as I write, I feel them gathering around me. And, <laughs> well, I'm right? sure I, they're very proud. <laughs> oh, well, I, I hope so. I hope so. I hope I'm, you know, able to do some of the stories they told me justice, right? Um, so, in fact, maybe this is a good way to end our segment. Um, in one of the Kiran Mala stories, the father says, you know, we human beings may not be powerful or magical, but the stories we tell our children can be. And so that's kind of what I keep in my heart when I write. That is a perfect quote to end with because normally my mom, Caroline, my mom, and gives us a quote for the ending, but this is, uh, and she's not here to do that. And so thank you so much. <laughs> and um, I really look forward to reading your next Austin tale. Thank you so much. It's been a delight <laughs> to chat today. And thank you all for listening and see you next week on Writer's Voices. 